0: Thank you to our sponsors for supporting this episode of Troxel, ARC-IT, BQE Core, and Avail. We'll share more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. I've been waiting a long time for this one, and in this episode, I welcome Paul O'Carroll. Paul is the founder and CEO of Arcol, which you may or may not have heard of yet. The goal is to build a collaborative building design and documentation tool that will run in your browser. I want to emphasize that this is a tool that's not out yet, but there is quite a bit of hype and excitement around its development. I also have to say I like having conversations with Paul because there's absolutely no pretense involved, and his passion for better is contagious. His goals for Arcole are, how do I say this? Well, they're massive. Simply put, and that's not to imply there's anything simple about it. The team at Arcole are hoping to give Autodesk, and, and others, I guess you could say, a run for their money by promising Figma for BIM. Now, I don't want to make any assumptions here. You may never have heard of Figma, especially if you're deep in the AEC trenches or old school. And if so, that's okay. We get into it a bit in this episode, so it should all make sense by the end. Needless to say, it's a different approach to software than the major incumbents that most firms use today, Because the web has brought about a major paradigm shift in software development in the last two decades. Most of the software we use today predates that. And Figma has been a major factor in that shift. If you head over to arcole.io, you'll see some newly released screenshots that show off what they're building. And when you're there, remember that when you look at them, that everything you see is happening in the web browser which means it'll pretty much run on any device. Beyond the Figma-related goals of being browser-based, easy to learn and use, and highly collaborative, they're also promoting Arcole as being AI-driven. We didn't have a chance to get that far into that particular topic in this episode, but I have a feeling there will be more conversations in the future. This discussion includes some thoughts on their core values and what Paul refers to as first principles thinking, the fundamentals of the Arcole product, why being opinionated is important in software development, why Paul and team are choosing themselves to solve the problem of bringing the magic back to BIM and architectural modeling and documentation software in general, and more. I think the development of Arcole is going to be a long road, but I am rooting for them to succeed. So, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Paul O'Carroll. Paul, welcome! It's great to have you here. Great to see you again.
1: Awesome to be here. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so it's uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm super excited.
0: Thank you. Yeah, you've actually been one of the people who's contributed a uh, I don't know a testimonial for the show on my on my page. So appreciate
1: that. <laughs> no Thank worries. You. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. This is uh, this is cool. That's very cool.
0: And and you're doing some very cool stuff. I think before we get to the what what you guys are up to and and why you're up to it, I want to get your origin story your backstory how'd you get here how did paul become paul and i know that there's an interesting story here uh i can hear it in your accent <laughs> so i i'm very interested in in um you know your recent transplant to new york city there's a lot of cool things going on so how, how did all this how did all this start
1: yeah I'm, I'm irish so i can talk for hours about all this i'll uh, i'll be as quick as possible but then feel free to uh to jump in with questions um yeah, like I'm the the typical outsider. Like I didn't go to architectural school. Uh, school. You know, I started... Uh, how I get into programming is like, like happen chance. Like, so I was scrolling. So I was like this 14 year old kid, like played Minecraft videos or Minecraft, and like made YouTube videos. Um, I bought a computer, uh, saved it when I was younger. I was going to YouTube one day and saw this like a thumbnail of video, like 0101 matrix uh, kind of numbers across the screen. I was like, that looks cool. Like clicked onto it. It turned out to be like this C sharp uh, uh, kind of Windows app tutorial, like 40 videos, uh, like a week's worth of content, uh, and I went through it in like two or three days, and just was hooked on programming. I thought it was the coolest, coolest thing in the world, uh, making the very typical Hello World app. And then, kind of, I went off from there. I I made, I made um, what I called like I, I had this idea in your days. I want to create Jarvis because I would watch Iron Man. It's like that's cool. Like, surely yeah, I can do that. So, like, I made this like app that you could talk to, and it would open up certain apps. Like, I could get it open up Spotify and open up YouTube and search for a video and change the volume. It was like the worst, like Siri, like it was terrible, but it was a really, really cool experience. Uh, and it was fascinating to me. And then came across Unity and was like, oh, I can make video games. Like what the hell? Oh, and they use C Sharp, which I know. Great. Let me start making some video games. Kind of did that for a couple of months, uh, playing some cool projects, built some, some interesting stuff. And then was like, oh, great. There's freelancing. Like I can be paid to do this and like, I can learn all work with all these amazing people across the world uh start freelancing and and really kind of the rest of history uh built a relatively solid career in the games industry you know freelancing with uh, other AAA studios or kind of indie studios and then I decided to move kind of a trend I noticed while doing all that was everything I did I always brought it back to architecture in some way like physical architecture my father's an architect I wrote this a little bit in the manifesto about kind of me growing up sitting under his, his drawing table and thinking that was just such a cool like this man just had an idea for a building. He'd sketch it out and make this thing fury and it'd be beautiful drawings. And then six months later, we'd go on site with a hard hat that like doesn't fit and like a visi vest that doesn't fit and see this, you know, mound of steel and timber and glass a wreck from the floor. It was just the most magical experience. Like it was the coolest thing in the world to me. Um, So I kind of noticed that, like I noticed that I, I always thought architecture was interesting during game stuff. And I said to him one day, I was like, hey, I want to like, work in architecture. I want to like start working in architectural firms. Originally my thesis was that, <laughs> yes, I know we're getting at why. <laughs> what, no, what did
0: he, yeah. Did he dissuade you? Did he pull you? Like I, I'm interested in like the the dynamic, especially of a father son kind of a relationship because I, I see the whole gamut, right. Uh, even when there's no relationship involved. So, so this is a very close relationship. Was it, was it a push or a pull? To architecture? It's a good
1: question. I think, I think it's always been like a subconscious pull. Like we've always had interesting conversations about architecture and like I've always been fascinated, even when I did game stuff with the tech that they use in architecture and Revit and Mensk, like all these cool technologies. So I think with more of a pull, it wasn't a purposeful thing. He's been very careful about not pushing me towards architecture. But when I kind of was like, yeah, I want to work in, like I want to, my original idea was that I want to bring VR to architectural studios because, um, you know, when you're giving a client a representative, like a, a pitch of a building, you're bring them to a small conference room open up a PowerPoint, and you flick through this little 20-inch screen or TV at the end. And I was like, why don't we just... Like, we've made this gorgeous 3D model. Why don't we stick it into Unity, stick on a viewer helmet, let them walk around? Um, so I, like, walked into, like, the principal of this firm. was like, we should do this. Like, I want to do this for you. And he was like, sure, build it. Like, do it. Uh, so I started working in the office. I built this cool stuff. And, uh, yeah, he was very careful about it not being a forceful push, but, like, slowly just kind of reeling me into uh, to architecture. And then, yeah, I kind of, you know, that snowballed into working with more kind of typical enterprise companies uh i started a company we we're kind of a services business we we're a digital design studio mostly with at, at you know the last couple years fortune 500 companies stuff like in-house design tools back infrastructure, kind of general design tools again typically with an AEC twist um and then i started a I started Arcal.
0: yeah interesting wow and you you've been in ireland up until now is that true
1: yeah like it was it was funny myself and my girlfriend we uh last summer we'd never been to the states and we were talking about moving to like australia and we like want to move out of ireland and i had a business already in ireland i was like i want to i want to travel i want to do some stuff uh so we're like what about america so we're like yeah cool let's let's go like we have never been so we're like we picked uh we went to new york for two weeks we're in Austin for two weeks we're in la for two weeks and we came to new york and we just like fell in love with the city and we're like this is what we're gonna do we're gonna come here um so went through all the visa process we're still going through the visa process and we literally got here like we we are officially in our apartment the last like three weeks. It's been it's uh, been a hell of a ride. It's been cool. I, I
0: I love the the kind of stuff that you guys put out on social media, and I we'll get to what you, what you're doing. But I, I I I I love you said it before we hit record. You said I'm an open book, and I think the kind of voice that I see you talking on Twitter is very much in line with that. It's it's very much willing to just ask questions and get people to to jump in and be become part of the conversation instead of telling people like that this is how, this is how it is. This is how we see it. How does that, where does that come from? Especially as you're designing a product for potentially thousands of <laughs> users, right? Um, I mean, there, you, you certainly have opinions. You certainly have to kind of have a, a point of view, but at the same time, you also have to build the thing that people are going to be willing to upend their current workflows to jump into and and obviously there's going to be similar shared foundations in a lot of the tools that we use so they're not like starting from scratch but there's there's also got to be a compelling reason to get there and i would assume that a lot of that has to do with your approach uh, how you're going to interact with them and radically kind of you know incorporate them into the process
1: yeah, I mean there's a bunch of interesting things in there. I think um it's like one of our like values at, at call is is always be curious. Um and I think it's really important. I think I think my approach to building call has always been first principles thinking. And a core part of first principles thinking is that you just ask questions and you ask why five times. You're gonna to get to the core of an issue, um, and then you can kind of logically reason backwards or reason upwards from there. Um and I think my approach to like Generally how I built culture internally, generally how I am as a person is I'm just, you know, incredibly transparent. I have no problem looking like a stupid, I have no problem asking stupid questions. I if I walk into a room, I want to be the stupidest guy in that room. And if I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm gonna leave that room because I can't learn anything. Learning is growth, and growth is incredibly important. Um and it's played out, you know, as as you talk about, it, it's played out on on how I am on social because I'm just me. I just ask questions and sometimes I look stupid, sometimes I've a good opinion on things. And I think it then plays into how we build product at Arcol and how we build culture. Uh, and I've had this interesting kind of thesis for building product, uh, which we can talk about later, but it's called the cycle of product. And it is essentially the, the, the epitome of what we chat about, which is like the first act of Arcol is these are things we're opinionated on. And we've worked from the ground up to reason through these things, you know, being web-based, being collaborative, infinite canvases, better defaults, sketch-based modeling. Um, and the rest of it is like, hey, we don't have an opinion on it yet. So we're going to give you a plugin infrastructure to build the way you think you want to build it. And we then can gather in, like data from that and organize our own opinions on, great, you all build a HVAC plugin. We now need to gather opinions on HVAC plugins. We need to reason logically through that and how we're going to have an opinion on it. Um, and I think that's partly just from how I, I operate as a person. And I think I've, I've brought that to uh, to call. I think you can't have ground of innovation without first principles thinking. And I think if you just assume you just default know the best way to do things, I think you're naive. Um,
0: yeah yeah uh, interesting i mean this is uh I, I guess it's kind of the the tale of a modern product as well right because of the way that everybody is connected the way that a lot of this happens on display um it it needs to have that level of interactive behavior with the user group defining the direction of the product so that it can be welcomed and you know right at first blush at at alpha phase <laughs> before beta phase right
1: yeah, I mean, I mean and, and the problem with, with this approach is that you go the opposite way. You go that you just listen to users, and that's all you do. And then you get multiple different opinions, and then you just kind of never build anything useful or valuable. Then you have a paralysis, yeah, right. Exactly, and I think the, the risk of that approach is, is exactly that you go down that path. And my job as founders, kind of keeping the ship straight, is to listen to users, to customers' feedback, listen to customers' opinion and, and what people think they want, and to reason logically from that. Great, Great. you want a better way to draw doors. Why? Like, why do you want, why is Revit's way not good? Why is audit, like, like reason through these things logically, ask the stupid questions and get to the heart of it. And you understand, oh, it's because you're not using sketch-based modeling and it's a bitch to do Revit families. Like, okay, I understand now. Now we can reason logically back up from there. So yeah, to your point, it's, it's a kind of that approach of always being curious is a risk because you can be seen as not having opinions. I think my job is to distill, distill all the questions that I ask down into allowing me to form my own opinions on things.
0: And we've had those kinds of conversations. I think, yeah, we had Yeah, that that to me is the kind of thing that actually makes me feel like you guys are on the right path because I am. You're trying to understand the pain <laughs> that that architects who deal with this stuff on a daily basis are all dealing with. Don't like to talk about it because it sucks and it's not what we want to focus on. But for you to build something that actually works and that is better hopefully, is th- that there is one way to do that. And that is to understand what that's like for everybody on the, the user side of that equation.
1: Exactly. Like my, my thesis with Arcol is that we're rethinking building design. That sounds like a fluffy thing to say, but what it boils down to is like the state of design industry isn't great. You know, nobody likes the major incumbent. Um, so let's boil away all of that for two seconds. Do away with Autodesk and AutoCAD and Revit and BIM and the processes and workflows we've established. And what are you actually trying to do as the developer of software uh, in, in AEC, uh, specifically kind of design software? What you're trying to do when you boil it down is an architect has an idea in their head and you've got to give them software that allows them to efficiently, as beautifully and as fluidly as possible, give that information to the guy on site who's going to build a thing. That's all you're trying to do. And I think we have opinions on how to do that. But there are nobody. there's nobody in the world that knows better how to do that than architects themselves. And we just need to find a good way to maneuver those conversations effectively so we can get to the root of what they're actually trying to solve like you want to get point a to b great we want to help you do that as fluidly as possible and again to that point we just kind of ask those basic questions
0: yeah so why take on this challenge why so i think there's there's part there's two parts to this question actually there's why take on this challenge but like the the bigger why why what do you even see as being the problem because I think you have that point of view and I'm interested to kind of understand what that point of view is and I I'm sure it kind of stems out of working with your dad and having those conversations the, the whole time and maybe seeing the pain firsthand and then understanding that you have some of the tools to potentially deal with that. So and and then there's like the whole uh, okay, I'm going to dedicate everything I have to this. That's like the next level of the esoteric kind of why. of why that I want to get to.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um I mean, the answer to why is that I'm probably crazy. Um, And like, I just love solving complex problems. And this just seems like the most complex problem uh, that one can solve. Like if you look at uh, the $14 trillion construction sector, it's built upon design and design is mainly built upon a platform called Revit that nobody likes to use. And that to me is just the most mind blowing thing to try and understand. Um, So the why is like, I'm probably partly crazy and love solving problems. I think the more high level esoteric thing is kind of what I alluded to in the beginning. You know, I started my first, um, interaction with architecture or construction was this magical experience. And then when I started working in architecture firms, I realized it wasn't magical. Like nobody, the creativity and just the fun of architecture felt gone and nobody, the the fun and joy felt that it was sucked out of architects. Um, and I had this idea I was like, why don't we just rebuild these tools? Like, why aren't they web-based and collaborative and beautiful, you know, five years ago? Um, so I, I wrote I this, and the manifesto was actually fun to write about because I've been pitching and talking about alcohol a lot, and I've been thinking about this and putting a lot of kind of quote-unquote brain cycles towards it. But writing out the story and connecting all these dots through my career has been interesting. I think the high-level esoteric kind of fluffy thing as to why I want to do this is I want to bring that, you know, magic back to building design. Um, I think maybe more practical approach is that I saw how frustrating my father's life was using Revit and, and how much he hated it. And I was like, you use this tool for eight hours a day and you don't enjoy it. I was like, I can build a tool that you'll enjoy. Like, why don't I just do that? Um, it's like maybe in a really low level practical thing, it's just like, I want to make his life better. And then you extrapolate that out into, if his life is not like that, one hundred, of the other hundred thousand architects life like. Um, and I think uh, buildings are such a core thing to society um like you're in a building i'm in a building um, and this the professionals that designed these buildings don't seem like they're enjoying it anymore uh, at least from all the ones i've chatted to um and that is sad and i want to bring some of that back
0: yeah i think that there's a, a huge value in bringing that back i can you imagine the state of the work if there was enjoyment in that process. <laughs> it would be, I think it'd be drastically different.
1: No, it's a yeah. great point. Like the the cascading waterfall effects of particularly construction are fascinating. Like if we can make, you know, you know, this kind of non-trackable thing of making architects' lives better, like we can build nicer buildings and build more buildings and house more people and build cheaper buildings. Like all of those waterfall cascading effects are just fascinating. And the only reason that we have an impact on them is because we're solving such a core root problem of the lowest level design platform we're building like we're not just tacking on another platform on top of it we're going great we want to rethink how you actually design buildings um and it's like one of the most fascinating things but the problem to me is just great we're going to make this user's lives ten thousand times better but what about the guy's actually going to live in this space like how much more is he going to appreciate it because the space is cheaper or was designed better or was more efficient like all of these kind of things that you don't uh think about when you're doing ui ux designs that will happen 10 years from now that's just fascinating to me and it's only happens because we mix those that digital and the physical in construction it's really unique
0: yeah this is a big huge problem this is a challenge i should say i like the the thing that you are embarking on is a big huge challenge where do you begin there's so many things fighting for attention immediately i can imagine like like the, the when you ask a question what are the problems with x your process mm. tons of hands go up and they're all they all have a different <laughs> reason and so you've got to kind of start somewhere, right? So where are you
1: beginning? Yeah, that's a good question. So like product-wise, I think if you boil down all of the high-level problems, um, you can succinctly communicate them in, in usually low-level issues. And where we're starting product-wise is like the very basics of buildings. And we just want to absolutely nail them. So like the closed alpha, which we're releasing in the next kind of two months or so, is going to be Walls, windows, doors, stairs, ceilings, and some basic documentation. Uh, do it in a cloud-based environment or do it in a web-based environment, do it collaboratively, and it should be beautiful and amazing to use. If we can nail them, then it's about just kind of working upwards vertically and through like what are the next aspects of buildings? You know, HVACs and engineering and structural and civil. Um and I think product wise, our approach has always just been, you know, kind of top of the act one, act two piece. Act one is the things that we're opinionated on and we need to implement like we can have huge impact on, infinite canvases, sketch-based modeling, better defaults, um, and proving them with basic walls, windows, doors, stairs, ceilings, and saying, here's these basic things and these basic workflow improvements that we've given you. Imagine if you did all of your building like this. Uh, Imagine if your entire building design process was done using these basic things. Um, And then it's just continuing to ask those questions and boiling down all these kind of high-level problems into, great, we have this foundation that we sit upon have this foundation of drawing walls, windows, doors, stairs, ceilings, beautifully and amazingly, what's the next level up? Um, and we'll just reason through that from a product perspective. And it's a, you know, there's a, a mixture of like dedicating resources internally. And I would put like, there's all those other kind of company questions to answer. Um, product wise, it's about like, you want to build buildings, you need walls, with no doors, let's just nail them first.
0: Yeah, there's, there is kind of that low, low hanging fruit aspect of it. And I'm wondering if you guys are rethinking, I I, I kind of assume the answer is yes, but okay, there's there's software that we already have that already does these things, but like you said, people don't like using it. Uh, what are you doing differently about those real basic low-level things that help get people over the hurdle of what they're, the way that they're used to versus the way that it could be or the way that it should be in an idealized fashion?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's basic things like being web-based and being collaborative. It's just such a... Uh, impactful workflow improvement um, and you can begin changing at the early stage from productivity to being a creative space um, I kind of like alluded to it, like those three things I talked about the manifesto those are the three things we've started showing off uh, in the beginning and that I'm I'm excited like we, we've showed some prototypes to people and I'm excited to get people's actually hands-on experience of like okay great you want to drop in a door instead of having to fiddle around with Revit models which we'll just give you better defaults from, from, from standard um, and it becomes more about actually collaborating in the creative space not fiddling around with where this handle on the on the family goes um i'm trying to do it all parametrically um so those like small workflow improvements are being extrapolated out into great what if you did a thousand doors in the building and much more efficiency would you gain from that um i'm really excited for all that i'm really excited to show off the closed alpha in you know about two months or so
0: yeah it seems to me like uh people are going to have to use it to understand or actually have to try it to understand and and i'm wondering where you're what your goal is with the platform in the beginning, because like you're saying, it's going to be web-based. Why, why did you choose to go web-based? Why is that better?
1: I think, I think inherently collaboration is just easier on a web-based platform. And I think if I, I have this thesis um, that all major human-facing design tools will be natively web-based in the next, call it five years or so. Um, I think tools like if you compare Microsoft Word with Google Docs um, or Sketch with Figma, I think being natively web-based means not only is collaboration easier, you can send links to people instead of having to you know, download this software and do all these things. Accessibility is easier. You know, you can, you can To my point, you don't have to download a nine gigabyte uh, Revit software, uh, or you know, the latest Revit update. Um, I think the reason why a lot of tools haven't been web-based over the last five plus years has been technology. It's hard to build web-based technologies. Performance is harder. It's harder to get um, performance from your hardware. Um, I don't think that's a valid reason anymore. I think it's still a problem, still a problem a lot of tools to face. Um, but I think if you were to rethink building design, one of the core things, one of the basic table stakes things is that it should be web-based. Like that just makes Seem,
0: sense. Seems like a hard thing to add later to a well-established product versus thinking like that from the beginning. So you do have an advantage in that.
1: Yeah, it's just that's just tech debt. I mean, it, it would be physically impossible to put Revit on the web at the moment, like, physically impossible.
0: It would be a different product, yeah.
1: Yeah, it would have to be a diff- different product. and. If you are rethinking that, that tool, there's a lot of table stakes things you can, you can put out. You know, web-based collaboration. Like, why don't we have real-time collaboration in every major design suite? Like, we should. And I think, I hate using COVID as an example for all these things. It's such a cliche use case. But COVID was a kind of shine a light on all of this and all the crap workflows we have. Where, great, it's, it's, it's amazing that you can call your, your, your colleague over to your laptop and show him what you're doing. What if you're a thousand miles away from each other? How do you do that? Well, we have Zoom. We screen share. Okay, well, that's not super ideal. How much more amazing would it be if you can send somebody a link, you both have your own cursor, and you're in this space together in a creative environment? Like, that's how design tools Yeah, are you
0: making. guys have built this as uh, Figma for BIM. Can you explain what that means? Because I, I imagine, I know Figma is popular. I don't know how popular it is, especially in established design firms who have been paying Adobe a bunch of money for many, many years. So, so maybe you can just explain what Figma is as a concept and then how you guys are thinking about that applying
1: to building information modeling. That's interesting. I've talked a lot about this, and there's a lot of different points to take with this. I think part of Figma's thesis in the early days was the core design tools we use in UI, UX, or product design, i.e. sketch, just um, aren't great. It's not really a great experience to use them. Um, and we think if you put on the web and focus on collaboration, because a big part of that thesis in the early days is that design is inherently collaborative. You know, you don't do do design by yourself. Design is a a thing you do with multiple people. Um, So why don't we have design tools that enable that? And, you know, the early versions of Figment weren't feature parity with Sketch, and they just nailed collaboration. Um, And I think they've proven, um, particularly in that space, and that's then extrapolated into every other vertical, that collaboration at its heart, especially in in design-focused things, um, is the core of what you're doing. So like there's the, the initial thesis of being web-based, being collaborative, um, is that you know architecture is, is a creative space. Therefore, it is done by multiple people. Therefore, you should have creative design tools. I think there's a lot of other aspects to the Figma story that are really interesting to me. One of the other ones that I talk about a little bit internally is this idea of like product empathy. And Figma have done such an amazing job at nailing workflow improvements within a tool that they just understand the user. So, like one of the things that we we're chatting we were with the director of product a while ago, and he gave us his example of the reason he joined Figma was um, he was like moving a, a, an item across the screen, and if he held control, it would like copy it automatically or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. And he was like, that is such an intuitive thing that you wouldn't understand if you weren't a designer. That makes my life so much easier. And that to me just proves you care about the thousand little things at the bottom that make it so much easier to have high level workflow improvements. Um, building product that is inherently beautiful. I think. Like, I hate opening AutoCAD or Revit because it just makes my eyes hurt. Uh, and it fascinates me that architects spend eight or nine hours a day in that tool. Um, and I think it should be a fun, beautiful environment to be in. Not only, like, visu- kind of visually looking at it, but workflow improvements to my point of, like, Figma's example, of moving it and, and holding control and it copies automatically. You should understand and empathize with an architect's low-level workflow. Um and build product that actually does that, not just features that enable it, not just drawing walls and windows and doors, but how does architects want to actually draw walls, windows, and doors? Do you want to use a mouse, and do you want to use shortcut keys? Like, which is the most intuitive one? Um, and again, that kind of comes back to my point earlier, first principle of thinking and all that. So that's why I use Figma for BIM. Inherently, it's about bringing collaboration and web-based tools to a space and, and, and taking on the incumbent that way. And the other aspect, kind of lower level, is just having a beautiful approach to product design.
0: Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. I had the pleasure of speaking with Boris and Alex over at Arc IT, and one of the threads of conversation that we had that I think we can all kind of relate to is that a lot of IT providers rely on you to be too much of an expert in this stuff, and they don't really understand the technology that makes your business work. And I think one thing that makes ArcIT a little bit different in that regard is that they understand the architecture and engineering space. And that's why I really felt like they're a great fit for this audience. So as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills, Even this morning, trying to resolve a domain name issue. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack, and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. Arc IT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. And again, this is something that I love about ArcIT is that they're being proactive. They're not waiting for the fires to come up. They're helping you plan for your future. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions, I think, across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to IT. that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. ARC-like architecture in the middle. And click Work With Us. In this podcast, I talk a lot about all the realities with my guests. You know, mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality, all the realities. And I've got a new message for you from my friends at Avail. Let's talk about the new reality, which is that content, as I've talked about in the previous message from them, both wants and needs, to live everywhere. Long gone are the days of saving files to your local hard drive or to a single on-premises server. In order to solve remote collaboration, information has moved to the edge. The cloud is king, and the number of cloud services out there dictate that the number of storage locations will continue to grow dramatically. Where do you store your files? BIM 360, OneDrive, SharePoint, Box, Dropbox? AWS, Azure, chances are you probably save them in some weird combination of those that I just mentioned and more. Well, here's the point of this message. Avail hides the complexity of where content and information resides. What file to use used to be your biggest concern. Now it's where do all those files live? Avail takes where out of the equation, which means that with Avail, you can actually find your mission-critical and not-so-critical files too, Right when you need them. Avail helps get you the information you need faster. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing the systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by an acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today helping architects be more successful at Tigger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Tigger at bqe.com slash masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and is brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to our conversation. You talked about Sketch earlier. I just want to point out to anybody who doesn't know about Sketch because I think Sketch is out outside. I, I've owned a copy of it myself. Uh, being a Mac user, I think, is part of the table stakes of being a no. Even knowing what Sketch is potentially, um, also working in UI and UX is probably another like the one of the main places that Sketch is used, and not for architecture. But just to put it out there, it's kind of a a similar app to Adobe Illustrator that gained a ton of popularity, especially in interface design for ios and android and things like that so that prototypes and mock-ups and wireframes and things like that could be made and it it garnered a lot of attention because number one it was a lot cheaper right but it had a lot of features um that were specific to the use case and so i think figma is a natural transition because again like when sketch was developed it wasn't a, there wasn't a cloud-based collaboration model out there necessarily i mean Il- illustrator is the same way it's it's, you know, you're working in your file and um, you've got to figure out then the whole back end workflow of where do I save that file? How do people access it? How do we name that file? All of these, these things that people in every architecture firm deal with all the time. Um, whereas as soon as you move to this cloud-based model where there's collaboration, you're sharing a link instead of a file and the files live in the cloud and you know where to find them. Um because they're part of the app environment um rather than the compute environment, right like this is a whole different thing, but we sketch was part of getting there, right Sketch was, oh, you mean there can be a professional grade app that helps me design the things that I need to design as an a developer of applications for operating systems or whatever to get to this new model that we're talking about so it is. Uh, it's kind of an interesting path that things have gone, and it might be totally oblivious to people in the architecture space that any of this has happened because they're still using Adobe products exclusively.
1: Yep, it's a very good point, and um, you've summed up this, the history of Sketch way more succinctly than I could. <laughs> this is why you do podcasts for a living, and I don't.
0: <laughs> I just just lucky, I guess, on that that I was actually a user at one point. But um, it's it, it's interesting to think about, and so so now that you guys are developing a figma for bim um and kind of like you said these first principles table stakes kind of things like collaboration on a project accessing it through a web browser which means basically any device these these are yeah this is a this is a big deal right and so um and it's very much flies in the face of I, I don't know, like, like installing software, which is what everybody's used to. Upgrading software, which everybody's used to. The, so, the files being inaccessible because they're locked. Because, right, this file lives on a server somewhere and only certain people can access it at one time. And um, everybody's kind of lived through the pain of collaboration for Revit all the way up through BIM 360. And there's, there's all kinds of things going on there as well. So it, like you, you're kind of taking away a lot of those issues right from the get-go, do people really understand what you're trying to do there and and kind of the consequences, potential pos- super positive consequences that come out of these, what you're considering table stakes kind of design uh, intentions?
1: Good question. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I've been, so I spent a long time in the early days of our chatting to architects. I think I chatted to like 250 plus architects. Um, and it's been interesting hearing feedback on a lot of things. I think, yes, inherently, I think architects understand the cascading effects and cascading advantages of moving things to being web-based and collaborative, besides, hey, you can share a link and throw people into it. There's a lot of other kind of um, uh, uh, consequences within that. Like, to your point, you don't own those files anymore. How does that work IP-wise? And a a lot of things are like, well, what if the server goes down? What if I can't work anymore? It's like, yes, these are all valid concerns. Um... And I think every other industry is moving and like every other vertical is changing and adapting to web-based uh, technologies because of all those major, major advantages. I mean, this was part of the, uh, uh, argument against moving to like like computers as a whole. My father was part of this. Like he was a draftsman originally moved then to CAD. And he was like, Oh, I like to feel it. And I don't have full control over it. And what if the computer breaks? And it's like, yeah, that's true. But all of these other efficiency gains are worth those quote unquote risks and we'll be looking back on these conversations in 10 years and being like, oh, we were the draftsman to CAD users, being like, oh, we, we saw that the computer may crash. We saw that they may lose internet. Um, and I think it's, it's important for developers of this software, particularly in construction, because of the litigation involved, because if a building falls down, hey, people will die. Like, there are more consequences there are in construction than in some like product design and UI UX. It's why Figma is able to move a lot faster than we will ever be able to. And I think it's on us to help explain a lot of these and help kind of quell a lot of these concerns. Um, I think if we take the approach of just like, ah, screw architects, like we're doing what the Valley is doing and we're doing in construction, that's not going to work. Uh, and that's not having empathy to, to architects. And that's not really trying to bring the magic back. That's trying to bring Silicon Valley to architecture, which is not what I want to do. Um, because I love architecture and it's one of the most fascinating professions in the world. Um, so yes, to your point, it's a really interesting kind of, step along the ways explaining a lot of these advantages and quelling all the concerns of you know what if i lose my internet and all those things
0: yeah yeah you talked about this bringing the magic back from a perspective of a beautiful product and and the i i that, i know that part ui but it's also like what you're drawing right and and you talk about this idea of better defaults and i think that's one of the big or it it has been one of the big hurdles in the past of revit and probably every other bim tool out there which is Um, well, let's just, let's just keep it with Revit because that's what I know. There's a, there was a huge pushback from those who had been in the industry for a long time that it didn't look like what they wanted it to look like when you put a view on a sheet, right? the, The line weights weren't right. The graphics weren't right. Let's just, let's just call it graphics. And, and that comes from that long history of graphic communication, which is a lot of training that architects used to go through. And I'm sure it at some level is still kind of drilled in. There is another camp out there, right? Which is very much like, look, it's just, it's data. Like this is the ones and zeros of the architectural profession. It's these lines on a page. And who cares what it looks like because what it means is more important. And I can see both sides of that, right? Um, I, and I think, you know, it. If, if you were to kind of boil it down into two camps, you've got kind of this, you've got the nerdier camp, which is like the data side. And then you've got this, this aesthetic camp because those graphics mean something to them where do you guys fall in this i mean it sounds like you're you want it to look beautiful so that that hurdle doesn't even exist but does that actually translate into the graphics on the screen when you're working
1: i think your use case is predicated upon history and upon rules and upon it has to look this way because this is how it's always looked, and this is how I like it, and that to me doesn't make logical sense. It's like okay, great, but like that's not what I mean. When I mean beautiful product, when I mean beautiful product, I mean the user experience is beautiful, uh, and if users want to fiddle around with the line weights of things, um, that
0: they are feeling while they're using the product, like they ha- it's a happiness factor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess so, and um, I mean, like, I guess it's a good way to put it, which is like. The, the highest level kind of tip of the iceberg is that it just visually should look nice. Like it should be laid out well, the buttons should be clear and the icons should be nice and text, like all those basic basic software things. Yeah, the UI. Um, but then below that, all these processes and kind of like you know, workflow improvements, you can't tangibly grab them. They just need to feel nice. Like you may not know why panning around a model is why you prefer panning around a model in Aco. Well, it's because we put two weeks of work into thinking through how intuitively that makes sense and how it should feel. And why is snapping so great? Well, because we actually care about how snapping feels. And it shouldn't feel clunky and terrible. It should feel nice. And it should go where you want it to go. And it should almost know where you want to go before you want to do it. And um, those are the aspects that are untangible, that are just beautiful and should feel nice. And I think there are two ways. You know, you've kind of separated these camps of, of communication, which is kind of database communication of, you know, you know maybe API calls, that kind of stuff, versus um, sheets and views and visually representing things. Visual fidelity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think if if I was to have a gun to my head, I think I'd come down on visual communication because inherently architecture is a visual and spatial medium. You, you should communicate your ideas visually. And if you want to, um, if you've got an idea or a sketch for a building, you don't create an algorithm that'll create the building for you. You go to your friend, you say, this is what I want to do. And you show him the sketch of what you have in your head, because intuitively that's the best way to get it out of your head. Um, and I think if we're talking about human-to-human communication, I think then visually is, is the most easy way to represent things. I think if you're talking kind of computer-to-human representation of talking to a software, then yeah, sure, database makes more sense.
0: Well, and I think, I think the, the true potential of BIM is in the database side of things, uh, but that doesn't mean that people have gone that direction, because they most certainly haven't. It, a lot of people think of Revit as a, it's a drawing production tool. It is not necessarily, and it's not best used as a BIM tool because the output traditionally and typically is a set of drawings. And in many cases nowadays, it's a PDF, right? So um, there can still be information embedded in a PDF that is rich compared to a printed set of drawings, certainly, Um, but and so, and so kind I, I want to push back into your, your thinking now and say, okay, now what about the delivery of the future, which is certainly not at some point and a man who knows when going to be drawings anymore, right? It, it could be views of a model for sure. And they could be, it could be a PDF for a very long time, but I mean, to the, the nerdier point of view that I spoke about earlier all of that information is already in the model, and the model someday will be the deliverable. And of course, the people who fall on that side of the camp wish that day was today; <laughs> they wish it was yesterday, right? But we're not there yet. So, where do you guys fall in kind of navigating the potential of where things are? Hopefully, certainly going. Um, of course, there's a chance that they'll never get there. Um, but, but what do you guys think about that? As far as like the the method of visual communication as a means to a- another possible delivery type in the future
1: i think a lot of this is outside of our control and we're not going to control when things move to digital delivery we're not going to push we, like we if we release our and don't support pdfs that's not going to mean that the industry is going to move away in pdfs
0: no i know yeah i mean you're absolutely right and and it's it's like you kind kind of have to do it all. Like you kind of have to think about it all, and and let the users drive that, I guess, or the the agencies drive that, or the insurance companies, or the lawyers. I don't know.
1: <laughs> it's Not even that. I mean, like our deliverable it will always be viewed as the link you can send, uh, like your your invite link with with ACL. That will always be deliverable. If you want to send the info to somebody, you send them the link. They have access to it. They can slice it up and divvy it up whatever way they, If they want to create sheets and views of it, they want to. Okay, an FBA, Like whatever they want to do with that information is is really as an architect out of your control. Like you shouldn't really have an opinion on it. Like it's not you're not the one building the information. Or the, the answer is yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you don't. Like yeah. Well, wait. Yeah, exactly. Like one of the one of the early naive, stupid questions that I went about when I started in this architecture practice years ago was I was like, we're making this 3D model and then we give the guys. We spend weeks fiddling over this 2D PDF and that's our deliverable. Why are we? Giving, aren't just, why, like, why aren't you sending them uh, an RVT file? Like This is the stupidest thing in the world. My father like, very calmly sat down and was like, well, think about it. What information does the guy on site need? I'm like, well, he needs a model. Like He can then move it around. He can see it. He can expand things, do whatever he needs to. And he's like, no, the bricklayer on site just needs nowhere to put the bloody brick. And the most efficient way to give him that information is a 2D picture that says, here's where you need to put your brick. And here's the dimension, next one, here's the size of it. And 2D PDFs and, and or, or 2D paper is the most efficient way to give them that information. Um, and it kind of was interesting to me because I view this as an outsider of like, we're, we're spending time on all this stuff. Um, why aren't we having an opinion on how we should give it to them? And it was an interesting kind of experience of like, you don't have an opinion on how that information is consumed. Whether a guy wants to throw on a VR helmet and then lay the brick that way or he wants to look at a 2D PDF. Like, that's not your c- control. It's your job to design the building. You shouldn't have an opinion on how that information is consumed. And that's kind of the way I view kind of deliveries out of our call. It will always just be the link, the invite kind of quote unquote link. Um, and whether you want to, you know, take PDFs from that, whether you want to export it as an OBJ or an FPX or an ORVT or whatever you want to do, we should allow all of it and we should have no opinions on how it should be outputted. Because it's, you know, kind of what I'm about, it's, it's out of our control. We don't control the regulations around it. Yeah.
0: It is interesting to think about how architects are just a piece of that puzzle. And a lot of times we're thinking about a possible future that is not the real future. And so we're trying to cover all those bases. And at the same time, we can't ever cover all those bases, nor should we be the ones who are in charge of deciding which way those bases are covered. Yeah, yeah. So one, one of the things that you, you and I shared um, some a conversation about was Daniel Davis's article on horizontal versus vertical. And maybe you can speak to your perspective on that. I'll put a link in the show notes to the conversation I had with Daniel about that topic and about his article uh, in the, in this show so people can refer to that. But our goal is on a similar path to, I think, what a lot of other software vendors have had to bite off in the past, right, which is a decision to... And you've already alluded to kind of how you're going about this with the, the plug-in architecture, but but the the idea that you solve a you solve for a set of problems that goes across verticals. So it's very horizontal in nature, right? What are the basic fundamentals that you need to do architecture, not a specific type of architecture versus skyscrapers or hospitals or you know, we'll call those the verticals in this industry. So what what's your view as as you start down the path of development of a of a new piece of BIM software.
1: This is really really interesting. It's interesting because when that article came out, uh, it synergized with a lot of what I talked about over the last kind of twelve months before that. And I text Daniel was like, "We have to chat." Like, I want to give you all my thoughts on this. And we, me and him, spent a long time going back and forth, and we had interesting conversations around it. And I haven't thought about it since. It was like six months ago. Um, so it's interesting to put myself back into that kind of uh, brain cycle side of things. I think. I think this boils down at the highest level to very logical first principles thinking again, uh, which will be the root of all my conversations, which is, if you're to rethink how you design buildings, do you want eight different softwares that allows you to do it for each typology? Um, No, that probably doesn't make sense. Do you want one platform that you can determine your own typology within? That probably makes more sense. Um... And that's inherently the way we're going about our con. That's kind of what I chatted about with this Act 1 Act 2. Act 1 is, uh, you know, we have opinions on these things, and these are things we're going to you know, strictly build ourselves. And Act 2 is then kind of customizability. Like, like we're the, uh, we create ingredients and let the users be the chef kind of thing. I think at, at its highest level, it boils down to, yeah, what I said, which was um, interesting. It's interesting. So I had dinner, Daniel, last night, and this was not what we chat about. Uh, we chatted about the story of Katerra for like 40 minutes. Because uh, I, I was talking to him about, like, I want to start studying companies again. He, he sent me the link to Katerra this morning.
0: Thinking, talking about verticals. There you
1: go. Yeah, I mean, somebody brought it up. It was funny. Somebody mentioned the fat middle, and I saw his, his ears peek up across the table. Uh, I'm sure he's sick of talking about it.
0: Well, what, what's interesting to think about is uh, an architecture firm or a group of people within an architecture firm or maybe an individual being having some agency in their own project typology destiny within the software that they use. So you're building kind of a shared set of foundational elements, let's just call it, you know, that work in no matter what kind of architecture typology you you participate in. What is the reality for someone we see design technology happening in firms we see amazing people build their whole career around developing things for a particular piece of software or processes or whatever how do you explain okay so yeah we're going to build this thing that works for all these different things and then you're going to build on top of that how how do people what do you think the reality of that's actually going to be like how difficult is that for someone to get onto that path and actually do something? that works for them and then how do i think something this whole industry suffers from is okay everybody is doing that like like nathan miller and ian keogh and they've all said everyone's got a stadium bowl generator out there they've all made it themselves right how do how do you get out of that and share it so that the whole profession can move up together is that something that arco even interested in I, there's a lot to to chew on there but maybe just pick pick a direction and go with it
1: yeah i think i think on, on that last point i think um we don't want uh, 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 to work in an industry where, to your point, there's 75 different different stadium bowl generators because it's a waste of knowledge, it's a waste of resources. I think maybe a way to handle that is to have a, a horizontal platform that you sit within. You allow users to determine their own workflow and processes by creating plugins, and you allow marketplace to sit on top of that to create supply and demand. You now don't have 75 different uh, stadium bowl generators because that's your IP internally, because... It's not, and that's a waste of resources. Uh, and there's a bunch of like consequential effects within that to think through. Uh, it's the part of the r story that I have punted. And like, that's act two, that's 18, 24 months away. We have opinions on all these things in the beginning and we should work through that. And I think the worst thing that Arcad can do is, is strictly be a horizontal design tool. Because what the last thing the industry needs is Revit 2.0. We don't need another massive bloated tool that does quote unquote everything.
0: And therefore nothing. I mean, not, exactly, nothing, and we- but yeah, it doesn't do a lot well.
1: Yeah, I mean, like a part of my original thesis when I chatted with Daniel was that you would have a, a set of typologies of Arcol. So you'd have an Arcol version for stadiums, you have an Arcol version for football or for you know hospitals, for office buildings. And uh, it would allow us to um, to correlate all that plug-in infrastructure that we built and kind of in a data-driven way say, great, Gensler made this perfect plugin for X. We want to buy it from them or we want to sit in the marketplace. And if you want to use this, this typology, uh, you pay seventy five dollars a month for it, and ten dollars goes to Gensler for their plugin. Forty dollars goes to us for the platform. Like, th- like that was one of my original theses: is, is that you have strict typologies. The question that becomes how does data flow across them? Uh, what if you want to share a model between one typology and the other? Um, like, th- there's there's interesting kind of uh, thoughts that happen there. I don't know how it's going to play out. Is my very honest answer, and I know the mat the 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 thing we need to figure out is mass customizability, which is plugins. And then the very uh, clear problem there, to your point, is that everybody's creating plugins, and that we just have this like internal—you know—you ha- you go from firm to firm; they all have their own plugins, their own way to do things. And we need to democratize that. We need to platform platformatize that, if that's a word, uh, in some way. And you know, one path is an open marketplace. The other path is we have strict typologies, and um, we work with those uh, people who make plugins to verticalize them and give them a cut of things. Um there's a lot of ways to do it. I think all of my brain cycles by right now are going towards how do we actually change those horizontal basic things at the moment.
0: Well, and I think you're starting down the path of what I'm about to throw out there, which is community. Having a strong pulse in the community of a mindset of sharing is a huge advantage in that in that way. I think that's is also something that's developed much more recent in more in, in recent years, which is this attitude of sharing. Uh, much more than protecting obviously with scripting and things like that it has become possible to have send that stuff out and enable other people to use it obviously there's questions of risk and things that come up around the whole practice of architecture and maybe even software that a firm develops and somebody else doing something that gets them in hot water later who who assumes that risk there's there's those kinds of things i don't think those are too difficult to solve but because of this attitude in the community of sharing, I think that is another build, a crucial building block for a new platform to utilize as you're as you're developing. Right, that becomes a way for you to solve these problems. Figma is a great example with their plug-in marketplace. Like you're talking about a marketplace, right? Like a, if you need to add functionality to Figma, you just click over on this tab, search for it, and like the, it's there. The answer is there, and people are incentivized to contribute. Because it is a give and take kind of a place. It's not just a place where developers hang out. No, it's actually a place where users are contributing to that community as well.
1: Yeah, and you you get ownership, like you, you get community buy-in, because the people are actually helping you develop the software, and they, their your opinions are heard, and they can control things themselves and making their own plugins. And to your point, it becomes a community of sharing. Like I think this is uh I've talked with this a little bit, but I think as a VC backed business, and particularly in construction, I think it is. Uh, required by us that we set aside X percent of capital and deploy that in a very non selfish way to push the conversation of AC forward. So, I've always talked about our call as two things I call, the product and the business, and you know, we're going to kill all of us and change the world. And as our call, the community. And I, what our call, the community, needs to represent is um, a lot of things. It is, it is an embodiment of how we think about things. It's first principles thinking to logical problems. It's let's share and not be dicks and like, let's have empathy to each other and let's just make this industry better. Uh, and push that conversation forward. And if R-Cold's community just becomes, you know, a Discord server where we shill R-Cold seats, like that is the worst thing that any kind of quote unquote community can have, and it's a terrible thing. Um, and I think one of the like what you're getting at is is blurring those lines between product and community, which is really exciting. And there's something really interesting there. Um, but community has always been for me a core part of the Arkold story. And one that we haven't executed against up to this point, and that I've been itching to try and do. It's why I'm running these dinners in New York. It's like an unscalable way for me to say, "Hey, let's get ten fascinating, and interesting people out. Let's like buy them dinner. Who's going to say no? And let's just have interesting conversations. And maybe out of that, two of those people start a company together. And then they do this. And then they, like, there's just all of these kind of serendipity of just sharing and working together, having empathy, and um, going in things with the, with the right mindset. It's just fascinating
0: to me. You've got to start with something, right? You have to start with a, a small step and it's kind of that, qual, that crawl, walk, run attitude, right? You have to start with that crawl. And this is, this is a great example of that. One of the things you said earlier that I just wanted to circle back to because I had this thought and then I forgot about it and, and now it's back, is the satisfaction of feedback when you're working in a digital process, which I think that's something that Apple's nailed, right? It's like, what does pushing this featureless button on a screen, on a glass screen feel like? And you've brought up the word feel quite a few times. To what degree are you guys studying that kind of user experience when it comes to interacting with UI? Is there anything, is, is that the kind of thing that you hope to achieve when you talk about like... Bringing the magic back and and how it feels to use software, because I think that that has a lot to do with it,
1: yeah, I agree, um like rubber banding in iOS is like the most beautiful thing, and it's if it wasn't there, you'd be like, "Oh, yeah, cool, it's a menu. I can scroll through it, and when it's there, you're like, oh they taught about everything um and that is the experience that architects deserve, so yes, it's everything down to low level, how do humans interact with computers and how can we make that as gorgeous and amazing as possible um and Apple's rubber banding is, like, the most great. And, like, like the keyboard, the, the algorithm behind the keyboard is a great example. Like, okay, we've got this tiny screen, so how do we determine, uh, what's the the guy who wrote it, his name, I forget. But the the thought and care that goes into, ah, we could have just slapped a keyboard on there and forgot about it, but no, we're going to actually predict what word you're going to say, so, like, the circle around that that uh, letter is now bigger, so you've got a bigger hit size. Um, like, that is just... That is care and attention and beauty at its core. Like, it's just, it's just, I think, like, I talk about this a lot, but to me, it's table tablesticks. Like, that should be how things are. I don't understand why they're not. So it's not some groundbreaking innovation. This is just what every industry does. And why doesn't architects, why don't architects have that same care and attention onto themselves?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, even think about physical keyboards, right? People will spend inordinate amounts of money on clicky keyboards with cherry switches because of how they feel and how they sound because it's so much more satisfying for them to use on a daily basis. Yeah. It's things like that. It's like, how does that knob feel to turn on the synthesizer? How does that, that button feel to push in the car? How does that volume button on the side of the phone feel when you click it? It's those kinds of things that can be translated into software. If you care as a developer of that software,
1: yeah, because the hypocrisy of architecture is: good architects do this with their work, like, like how is a person going to experience this space? What's the light? What's the flow? And how can we make this better? But the software they use doesn't embody all of that. Um, it's just a weird push and pull that, again, has never made sense to me. And I want to, I want to kind of quote unquote bring it back.
0: I think that's a fantastic place to wrap up. That that to me is the kickoff for our next conversation, whenever that may be. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, I think this has been fun. This has been. Um, this is my first time publicly talking about the story of Arkell, and uh, I, I think I'm like worst in my written me- in written medium. So, like the manifesto was like I struggled through writing it, but it was fun. Uh, whereas I would, yeah, it was very much torture. Whereas I would much rather get into a conversation for four hours and just jam on all these things. Um, and as I mentioned in the beginning, I have no fear of looking stupid and asking stupid questions. Um, this has been fun. It's been my first time talking about a little bit. I want to, next time we do this, I want to talk super specific around product and all things we're doing on that front because, um, yeah, that's all I want to chat through.
0: Yeah, I can't wait. I'm rooting for you guys. And so tell everybody where they can get on the waiting list, see what you guys have, your manifesto, and I'll put all the the links to these things in the show notes. But uh, give it a shout out.
1: Yeah, I wrote the manifesto on on Medium, which which the link you should have access to. It's arcol.io is our website, and then arcol.io/slash waitlist. Uh, We recently went over eight thousand people on our waitlist, which like there's a whole story and like an hour long conversation within that, and why that's happened, and like the tell behind that. Um, We're we're going to be launching a kind of Discord server community soon. Uh, we're going into closed alpha kind of may ish timeline, which again, first time I said that publicly, which is cool. Uh, and we're going to take about 20 people or so on that list. Um, so if you're interested in being on the list, reach out to me. I've had about a hundred people or so reach out over the last couple of weeks. Um, but I've been saying it to some, some people. Um, so I'm excited. And, uh, our slash waitlist is our, uh, hopefully
0: our call is like ice water in an architectural software. Hell, uh, that would be amazing. So again, I'm rooting for you guys. I appreciate your time today paul and uh, i do look forward to our next conversation because it's only going to to get more and more specific and actionable for people uh, because i mean this transition is not going to be easy it's not going to be easy for you to build it it's not going to be easy for the people to transition but i'm hoping that you give them all the reasons to think about why these things need to be important for everybody and and i think
1: that you guys are going to do exactly that awesome i love it i understand agree this needs to be tangible feelable
0: yep thanks paul Thanks for listening to the Troxel podcast. And once again, I would like to thank ARC IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at GetARCIT.com. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit GetAvail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for Troxel. Talk to you soon.